we have seen firsthand recently uh, in our part of the world just how frustrated people are over these ongoing pandemic restrictions. Uh, people are fed up. You know, the economic hardship, the restrictions, just, you know, it's dragging on so long, the social isolation, they all feed into each other. And it's, it's devastating for a lot of people. You can't deny that. And while most people are soldiering on some protest, there is a fringe element that is taking this farther. And we need to be aware of it. It's something that's in our country. As I said, it's a fringe element, but it, it, it's been growing over the past several years. And there are concerns that the climate that we've created around this pandemic is only going to fuel that fire even further. The National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliament has identified a growing threat in our country, and it's not from outside, it's from within. Hate groups that are going both up in number and in size, and again, the pandemic may make it only worse. Uh, Dr. Christian Luprecht joins us now. Um, Dr. Luprecht is a national security expert and a professor at Queen's University. Doc, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Good morning, man. Pleasure, Shay. Let's just get the lay of the land with these groups uh, in terms of uh, how prevalent they are, how many they may be identified within our country. I know the Parliamentary Committee was looking into that, and th- there's a lot of them, actually, right? Right. So in its annual report, so the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians was set up two years ago, and it, for the first time in Canadian history, allows parliamentarians to have access to classified information mm-hmm. um, so that it's not just in the hand of our security services, but also in the hands of the people who we elect, because inherently they can interpret things and, and provide a different strategic perspective than, for instance, the security services might on this particular issue. And so this is part of their broad annual report that flagged a whole host of challenges, Russia, China, yeah. foreign interference. Um, uh, and, uh, but it, it maintains that one of the most pressing immediate challenges remains uh, terrorism-related activities and the rise of particularly right-wing activities. And this is also fits into the picture, for instance, that we learned from um, the Washington Post and U.S. intelligence assessments with a rise of um, a significant spike, even in the last year, of attacks um, uh, that are attributed to, to domestic right-wing terrorism. And so this is not just a, a Canadian challenge, it is a broader continental challenge, and there's a broader challenge across uh, democracies and our allied and partner countries. And so I think it's helpful to have the conversation that you and I are having to raise awareness uh, about the many challenges that our democratic institutions face. Yeah. And, you know, in the report, they talk about how back, you know, going back five, six years, there was maybe 150 of these groups within the country. And now they've managed to identify up to 300 of them. So we've seen a, a, a proliferation of these groups, really. Yeah, so this is a function of a number of dimensions. One is that there's always been a spillover effect from the United States. So we've always had a presence, for instance, of the freemen of the land, of the sovereign citizens movements. Um, but by and large, they've, they've flown sort of under the radar because uh, they've traditionally not wanted to attract the attention of law enforcement or security intelligence because they know that that runs sort of counter to, uh, to, to their overall objectives. So it was just sort of a community unto its own but it didn't cause a whole lot, a whole host of problems. But of course, it did become, uh, come to prominence in Edmonton about, uh, I'm trying to think about maybe four years ago when uh, during a, um, uh, uh, during a knock by, by police, one police, Edmonton police officer was, uh, was shot and killed by uh, a member of, uh, of a sovereign citizens movement. And so since then, it's become clear that these groups aren't just a community of people who hold objectionable ideological views. They also ultimately pose a serious risk 
to public safety. And what we've seen, of course, even in the last year, and in particular with the events of January 6th at the Mm -hmm. U.S. Capitol, um, that they are increasingly um, not, uh, they're increasingly, their views and their activities run fundamentally counter to the democratic values, the democratic institutions that we hold, and that they've become sort of a, 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 not just a counterculture, but a significant challenge to society and democracy uh, more broadly that is augmented by technological change. Um, it was always sort of felt, I think, that you know the main challenge came from sort of jihadi, Salafist-inspired uh, terrorism movements. And with Christchurch, it became clear that uh, right-wing movements are as much of a global phenomenon and pose as much of a threat uh, to uh, Western societies and the safe and, and the well-being of our societies uh, as jihadi Salafist terrorist movements. Yeah, what's the deal with these groups? What is, is there a common theme? Is there something that unites them in their outrage and in their efforts. So uh, I think one of the elements that brings them together is generally a misgiving or frustration, uh, either with the institutions and democratic institutions more broadly, or with particular forms of government. Um, in the United States, for instance, we've, uh, to some extent, um, uh, Republicans came to reap what they sowed because, of course, for instance, during the Obama administration, we saw um, uh, the Republican Party uh, uh, maligning basically anything and everything that Obama and that his his administration did. And so that fundamentally polarized U.S. society, uh, pile on top of that Russian and Chinese interference efforts that are yeah. often US election interference is interpreted as people trying to manipulate the results. And it's actually much broader. It's simply about to polarize our societies and to polarize our discourse to try to make democracy as unworkable as possible. And so that's, I think, really sort of the what, what brings them together is that they, they engage in this extremely polarizing discourse that makes it very difficult for democratic institutions to reconcile the differences um, that people hold. And it's been wildly successful. I mean, you need only look at the at the current climate in Canada, uh, just in terms of the polarization and, and, and that divide, and it seems to grow every day. Yeah, and it's interesting that if you, you know, Wikipedia is about the only page now that brings people from all sorts of different ideological perspectives together because the internet, Facebook, the algorithms, you know, you yeah, mentioned yeah. them in your introduction, have essentially created uh, this sort of echo chamber where people only read and people only see the views that reinforce views that they already hold. And in particular, if these views um, then malign other people, then it sort of reinforces the, the position that everyone else is necessarily bad and you sort of have to defend the truth and you have to defend sort of what's right. And so what, we've, what we're losing in our democratic society is the ability to understand that we might disagree with other people, but we can still respectfully disagree with them and have an informed conversation. Instead, this is simply becoming this, this extremely polarizing perspective and then add on top of that um, an increased tolerance among these groups for violence as a means to advance a particular political agenda, and you have a very toxic mix that is of considerable concern both to law enforcement and security intelligence. 
Uh, Christian, I'm going to get you to hang on for just a second, then we'll talk about how the pandemic fits into all of this. Uh, if you can just hold on for half a second here. This is uh, Christian Luprecht we're talking to, who's a national security expert and a professor at Queen's University. We're going to take a quick break and then talk about how these various fringe elements in these extremist groups um, may be emboldened and, in fact, grow because of the pandemic. We're chatting with uh, Dr. Christian Luprecht, a national security expert and a professor at Queen's University. And, um, Doc, I just want to, you know, we're getting a lot of texts about this, and we always do when we have this discussion. Um, you're only talking about right wing. You keep saying right wing. What about the left? What about the left? I just want to point out the reason we're talking about the right wing is because this is a government report that was put together by national security um, experts and officials, and that's what they have identified as right wing um, extremist groups as being the concern. The exact same thing happened in the United States. But in the interest of fairness, Christian, um, where does the left wing fit into this? Why are we always talking about right wing extremist groups? We know there are left wing extremist groups as well. Um, what's what? Just give us that breakdown. Yeah, so for instance, in Canada, we also have a, a, a small but nonetheless sort of significant tradition of people, for instance, in the environmental movement who resort to extremist uh, violence. And there's a case I'd have to look dating back uh, in Alberta about uh, a dozen years also with connections sort of across the border. So your listeners are absolutely right that sort of the the, the ideological extremes that uh, come um, in, in particular come out of a U.S. environment also have spillover effects into Canada um, on, on both sides. Of the uh, of the ideological spectrum, but if you look at the empirical number of incidents, and you look at the trajectory of both the growth in groups and the number of incidents that um, are criminal in nature or at a minimum illegal in nature, uh, the growth pattern has been on the side of uh, of anti-establishment and. Um, you know, what, what broadly people tend to call right-wing groups, which is this whole umbrella of different, as you pointed out, people who have various sorts of grievances. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of why, so, it, so it's not to discount the challenges that come from both sides of the, of the ideological spectrum, um, the, and, and, and on both sides sort of perhaps a growing tolerance to resort to illegal, criminal, or possibly also violent measures in order to advance particular political agendas. But the growth pattern has has been um, for this type of activity on the right side of the political spectrum. Yeah, and extremism is extremism. And, you know, and putting it left and right is, I mean, if you're a conservative, I think most conservatives are just as appalled by some of the actions they see by that fringe extremist element uh, as a liberal would be. So I don't, you know, to, they may come from the right side of the spectrum, but to label that as a conservative movement is, is certainly not fair. Yeah, I think we need to distinguish two different two different elements here. People often talk of, of of radicals, and radicalism simply means like you have opinions that might be sort of on the margins of what's sort right. of generally acceptable. But you don't need to be a radical in order to be a violent extremist. So 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 um, so sympathizing with there are lots of people who sympathize with violent extremism but they don't actually actively support such groups and they would never engage in violence themselves 
And a number of the people who engage in violence themselves are not people who actually subscribe to violent extremism as an ideology. They engage in violence for any host of reasons. And so it's important that we not conflate the views that people hold in a democracy, because ultimately, in a democracy, the state shouldn't be there to police the views that people hold. The state needs to be there to police criminal activity and illegal activity. Um, And simply the views that people hold is not necessarily a good predictor of people engaging in violence. There's a host of other metrics around that, and that's, I think, where we need to be careful in terms of distinguishing discourse with which we might disagree, Mm -hmm. but that is not ultimately um, uh, driving violence per se from the people who actually engage in genuine criminal activity or uh, have the intent of doing so. Um, Okay, so now let's talk about how this whole pandemic situation and the lives we've all been leading for the past year can feed into this uh, growing movement. Um, That's one of the concerns identified in this report is that, uh, you know, the restrictions we're putting in to keep each other safe may actually be uh, causing us problems uh, down the road in terms of extremism. So uh, Corey Hearn, who was recently sentenced to six years in prison, is probably a good case study in this. So uh, the listeners might remember, he's the guy who drove in his pickup truck from rural Manitoba uh, to Ottawa last July in order to, quotation mark, in quotation marks, arrest the prime minister uh, at Rideau Hall. And so here's somebody who already had uh, challenges in his life beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, he then faced challenges with regards to his business during the pandemic. Um, and that then is compounded uh, that, you know, people are spending more time at home, so they have more time to spend on the internet and to chase down various rabbit holes of people's views and blogs with whom they might sympathize. It's more difficult these days on the internet to distinguish from, you know, some some bigot somewhere who might be posting something from, from a legitimate news source. Um, and so I think those are sort of the, the you know, the I think people have really suffered. They've They've suffered mentally, they've suffered in terms of their businesses, they've suffered in terms of their jobs, we've cut down their interactions, human beings are fundamentally social beings, they need to live in community, um, and, uh, um, and, and, and uh, I think so, when you have these compound effects that I think many people are uh, experiencing, I think we can do this for a short period, um, but when you get into prolonged um, periods such as we have now, you can see how people um, would might end up being frustrated with governments telling them to do things that fundamentally run counter to human nature, run counter to their personal preferences, and run counter to their interests in terms of, for instance, advancing their own uh, prosperity and economic well-being. So um, those kinds of feelings, resentments, they don't go away immediately when this is over, right? Like, this is a, a, a situation that we have created, um, you know, with the best of intentions, I think, that is going to affect us for some times in terms of these, this radicalization and, and these groups. Well, I think there's a steep learning curve here. We can't be doing this again. And I think, you know, one of the challenges in Canada is we really missed the boat here. We missed this boat on strategic intelligence assessments. And I think we need to take a hard look at countries such as Taiwan, New Zealand, Australia, that did a whole lot better, uh, in part because they're much better postured in, in, in strategic assessments and intelligence, and because they were better postured in terms of uh, of actually having prepared for a pandemic. So I think one of the lessons is, 
this this sort of uh, approach that you know this very homeopathic approach that we take to security and to intelligence in Canada is no longer serving us well in the 21st century, and that we need to be uh, we need to be better postured. I think the other lesson is that as a society, we're going to need to learn to be more resilient to disruptions uh, of the 21st century, whether those are the disruptions in terms of electricity that we saw in Texas, or it's disruptions of biosecurity as with the uh, uh, as with the pandemic. Um, and I think we've our governments have not been as proactive as they could and should be. And I think the fact that we're basically with the pandemic, we're building the plane while flying it, um, mm-hmm. is, is a good example that um, the, the I think the, the learning effects and the challenges from this for democracy, um, we, there's going to be a considerable lag effect of trying to return to some sense of normal and rebuilding the trust and legitimacy of democratic uh, institutions and democratic leadership. Um, and we, um, if, if we have to go through this again, I would be deeply concerned about the deleterious consequences uh, for democracy uh, for democracy as a whole. And so I think there's a... Um there's a lot to learn here, um, you know, and and hopefully um, we can uh, we can learn from our mistakes and not repeat them again because this is going to happen again and we can't be doing it the same way again. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, we, like you say, we're building the plane as it's flying, but next time we aren't. So we better have a better handle on exactly how to to handle this in a much better way. Well, the military always likes to say, you know, no first and uh, no plans arise first contact yeah. with the enemy. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a plan. And I think one of the things that it shows in Canada, we didn't really have a plan. Um, and uh, and I think we need to have a plan for uh, how we engage on the on the security and intelligence side to posture ourselves for threats that are below those of conventional sort of military conflict, whether that's in the cyber domain, the biosecurity domain, or political interference. And we also need to um, posture ourselves better in terms of societal resilience and our ability to respond uh, to profound disruptions because, look, our adversary, our tri- adversaries try to do everything from take down our el- electricity grids uh, to try to disrupt our transport systems. Um, and, you know, we, we see these disruptions also, you know, it, it, it's, it doesn't even need to come from adversaries. We saw earlier this year, you know, earlier last year from within our own societies, the disruptions, for instance, to our transport system. And I think we just need to be much better position to be able to uh, uh, to continue because if democracy and democratic leaders are thought uh, to be not to be able to respond and respond effectively and respond in an effective and timely fashion, that is going to fundamentally undermine the legitimacy of our democratic institutions, our democratic leadership, and it's going to play into the hands of our adversaries that would like to do nothing more than cause uh, chaos and consternation and disruption in democratic societies so that, you know, Russia and China can hold up their regimes is vastly superior to democracy. Yeah, exactly. And they just point and look what's happening over there. Uh, Great discussion, Christian. Really appreciate your time today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is Christian Luprecht, who is a national security expert and a professor at Queen's University.